Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our text this morning on this Transfiguration Sunday is the account, St. Luke's account of the Transfiguration. We'll pay particular attention to these verses. Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothes became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. This is our text, dear friends in Jesus Christ. Some time ago at a reception honoring the British musician Sir Robert Mayer on the occasion of his 100th birthday, elderly British socialite Lady Cooper, Lady Diana Cooper, fell into conversation with a friendly woman who seemed to know her rather well. Lady Cooper's failing eyesight prevented her from recognizing her fellow guest until she appeared a bit more closely and looked a bit more closely at the the radiant and magnificent diamonds the guest was wearing. And then she realized she had been talking with the Queen, Queen Elizabeth. Overcome with embarrassment, Lady Diana Cooper curtsied and stammered, Ma'am, I'm sorry. I didn't recognize you without your crown. The Queen's response was kind. She said, it was so much Sir Robert's occasion, I decided to leave my crown at home. A kind gesture by the Queen, but also a good illustration of how, with the obvious and the the evident and apparent accessories of majesty missing, it can be easy to forget the one who is majestic, in this case of herself or of himself, whether or not he or she wears the crown. From before his birth, Jesus had been foretold by prophet and proclaimed by angel to be the son of the living God, incarnate. But veiled in common flesh and and in humble form and appearance as a man, without the evident and apparent trappings of his divine majesty, without the obvious crown, The world too easily forgets that in the carpenter's son of Nazareth, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. As Jesus traversed Palestinian and Judean plains and valleys without jeweled scepter and heaven's crown, even though God the Father had spoken for him, even though God the Holy Spirit had borne witness to him at River Jordan's edge, proclaiming him to be the chosen one, the Son of God. Even so, the appearance of God concealed, God veiled, still raised constant doubts within the minds of those who heard of him, who heard him, who saw him. Indeed, to this day, man's mind, delusional in his sin, in which he's born. Man's mind raises doubts constantly about the God who comes to us veiled. And I don't just mean the minds of outsiders. To be sure, the outsiders, no doubt, most then doubted Jesus' divine nature, his divine presence. Most still do. In fact, verses before our text, Luke records that Jesus posed to his disciples that ever pertinent, ever ever sound question to be asked, ever relevant question, who do people say that I am? And some say he's one like John the Baptist. 
Others say he's like Elijah or Jeremiah. So many to this day say he's still just another prophet. But few confess that he's the son of the living God. Peter did. Sort of. You see, even Peter, an insider, not an outsider, but an insider, even Peter couldn't comprehend the the paradox of God veiled. It's not that Peter wasn't enabled, not by flesh and blood, but by the will of God, by the Father above. It's not that he wasn't enabled to, to see behind the veil. He was. To recognize that the man with whom he walked And he talked and he ate and at times he would sail across an evening sea in Galilee with whom he so often certainly must have shared many a quiet night around a crackling fire. It's not that he wasn't able enabled by faith to see that this one was the eternal son of God. Indeed, you've been able to see behind the very same veil. But Peter just couldn't see the eternal God descending into the plains and into the low-lying valleys of life where things are very sinfully dirty and they're dusty. You know it well. And they're dark, sinfully dark. Peter figured God belonged up on mountaintops. And so you recall right after confessing Jesus to be the Christ, what does Peter do? He scolds the eternal God. He scolds him for Jesus suggesting that now it's time for him to go on to Jerusalem where where he's going to be handed over to the chief priests and the elders and be delivered up to be crucified. And Peter said to him, don't talk that way. And immediately after that, in Luke's account here, he notes that just before our text, that Christ would then further angle expectations of his disciples, not mountain word, but valley word. When immediately before today's text, immediately before the text today, he tells his disciples that not only does he, Jesus, have a cross to go and embrace, a cross far graver and higher than any of theirs, a bitter cross in store for him, but also that all of those who would be his disciples daily are going to have crosses in life to face. These aren't soaring and inspiring sayings, the kind that fill your sails of faith. They aren't soaring, they're not inspiring sayings, but they're unadorned, unjeweled sayings foretelling of unmajestic and humiliating roads that lay ahead of them, that lie ahead of us. These sayings, whether heard by them then or by us now are sayings almost enough to cause one to forget that it was then it still is for us today the divine one down here who dwells in our midst but then Luke writes as our text here our gospel reading begins today now about eight days after these sayings that he had just shared with them. Jesus took Peter and John and James, and you could say he takes us too through their eyes, through their report, takes us up and went up on the mountain. 
Why? Because it was time to pull back the veil for just a moment. There on the mountain, Peter, John, James, they slept, it appears, as Jesus prayed. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Heavy with sleep, they slept as he prayed. And as he prayed, his true, his unveiled colors began to show and shine. The appearance, Luke writes, of his face became different. Literally in the Greek, it became other. It became different, altered. And his cloak became dazzling white and he was metamorphosized. The Greek text says in another gospel account. And roused from their slumber, Peter and James and John saw, beheld with their own eyes, light of light, God of God, beaming, radiant, light penetrating his clothes, beaming with unborrowed light as we often sing in that transfiguration hymn. And before their waking eyes, they saw the veil of heaven pulled even farther back. Moses and Elijah Great prophets of old appeared before them. How they knew these were Moses and Elijah, it's hard to say. But Peter evidently knew when he made his tent request for the three shelters, he knew who they were. And if these disciples, if they were clear enough of mind, perhaps in that instant, beholding it all the three dazed but dazzled disciples thought of there with Moses and Elijah before them, all the Old Testament theophanies, the God manifestations, the God appearances that were recorded in Holy Writ when God appeared to Moses in a blazing bush, burning brightly yet not consumed like what they were seeing there in front of them. Or when God appeared to Moses on another mountaintop. When his glory passed by, Moses was hidden in the crevice, much like what they were beholding right there in front of them. Or when Elijah found himself in the presence of God, who was not in the earthquake or the fire of the wind, but was in the, the voice, the still small voice. And now all of it there happening to them. And they not only saw a little bit of heaven, they heard a little of heaven's conversation too. Ironic it is that heaven's conversation was fixed on what Jesus was about to accomplish on earth. Luke reports that Moses and Elijah and Jesus were speaking. You could even say we're in the, the, the process of speaking. Because you see the Greek verb indicates, its tense indicates that the conversation likely didn't just pick up. When Jesus started shining and Moses and Elijah appeared, it seems that it was a conversation that had already been taking place. And that the three disciples were, were eavesdropping on a conversation in progress. Imagine angels, saints, patriarchs, prophets buzzing about what their incarnate Lord was soon to accomplish on earth at Jerusalem. And what was he to accomplish? His exodus. That's literally what the text says. The Holy Spirit's chosen Greek word there to describe what Jesus was about to accomplish and fulfill in the Greek, his exodus. Some versions translate it his departure. Some are a bit blunter. Perhaps read into the word a little bit and translate it his death. Both are good. Both are right. But perhaps simply his exodus. 
For in that word is enveloped the greatest deliverance God's people had ever known. At least to date. A salvation, remember, effected by the bloody death of unspotted lamb. Well, that's exactly what this Jesus, shining, brilliant, bright, mountain-topping Jesus, this Lamb of God, was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. It's what he was headed to fulfill, his exodus. It must have been fantastic, right? And can you blame Peter for wanting to remain there on the mountain's glory? Master, it's good for us to be here, right here. Right here, let's stay here in this moment. I'll put up three tents. The scripture says Peter didn't know what he was saying. See, he spoke the natural human instinct. He just verbalized what naturally, and and you could say even sinfully, we we long to, to hold on to. Let's retain the glory, Lord. It's good for us to be right here. It's good for you, Lord, to be right here and to stay right here. Let's not go down. Let's stay right here. It's good for you to be here, Lord, not down there, but here. But Peter didn't know what he was saying. Because Jesus' glory doesn't save. And besides, Peter, do you really want God's glory? Well, then here it is. And Luke writes, as he was saying, Peter was saying these things, a cloud came and enveloped them, overshadowed them. That's the Holy Spirit's language to describe the presence of, of the, the eternal and almighty God. The, the, the cloud overshadowed and shined on the tabernacle with the presence of God. Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. And they were afraid, the text says, as they entered this cloud of God's glory, as sinful men like you and me, like Peter, James, John, as we should be in the presence of the glory of God. Like Isaiah was last week in the, in the Old Testament reading. And suddenly, Luke writes, a a voice came from the cloud, This is my Son, my Chosen One, listen to Him. All of it, the sun-like radiance beaming from Him, Moses, Elijah, the cloud, the voice of the very Father Himself, and then nothing. And then nothing. But Jesus alone, veiled, Veiled and yet still the same Jesus. For it was this Jesus, veiled though he may have been, veiled though he had to be. It was this Jesus that descended that mountain. He wouldn't remain there. But he descended that mountain so that he in veiled form could shine brightly from another mountain, Calvary. Veiled though he may have been, it was this same Jesus whose holy veil of his flesh was torn and whose soul was livid with grief. In order that you, whoever you are, wherever you've been, in order that you would be able to enter behind the veil and into the holiest place. For though your sin, for though your sin was like scarlet, by him it has been made brighter and whiter than snow. 
Veiled though he may still be, it's the same Jesus' majesty hidden that has descended into the plains and into the dark valleys of our life. It's the same Jesus, is it not? The same one. Veiled though he be, that reaches out and that, that touches you so often in this Holy Supper, the sacrament of his supper, and says to you what he once said to Peter on Transfiguration's mountain, reaching out and touching him, the glory having passed, he says, Arise. And do not be afraid. Don't be afraid of what you may have done, wrong as it was, or what you may have left undone, or what you even may have said, not knowing what you said, what you were saying. For isn't it the same Jesus who veiled in Scripture and in preached word, though he may be, Isn't it the same Christ that speaks his pardon to you? And so as the Father said, listen to him. Listen to him. Not the accusing voices that may well rend your mind and shake your conscience and your confidence. Listen not even to your own voice if it should suggest such a thing. Listen to him, lest you mock him in the word he died to speak to you. Throughout Christendom, many suffer from Peter's impetuous instinct to head for the mountains. Let's be where the glory is. It would be great to think it were it was only the thin mountain air up there that caused Peter to think that, but it wasn't. It was it was human instinct to want to be and remain where the glory is, to downplay his cross, Jesus' cross, and, and his shame and suffering. To downplay the crosses that we are we're bound to bear as his disciples in life. And so many a worship forum and, and praise ensemble will direct the attention of many who hear to to mountaintops of glory. And it will be said by, by, by many, if you live as you should live as a Christian, if you be all you can be as a Christian, you'll stay, you'll stay tented in that mountaintop moment. You won't have to come down. But that's not real life. Think about it a moment. Don't we rather need God down here? Where we are, where we live life, where we know life is lived from the confession of our sins this morning. Onward, isn't it all about God veiled? Descending from on high to meet us where we are in the valleys and on the plains of life as we listen to him. Doesn't his word dress and bandage real life down here? Doesn't it keep the feeble from failing? And from falling and refresh the weary on your way? Isn't isn't communion with him for the lowly and for the weak like us that we might leave here with his strength to go on and press on? If you think that you, you best find God for you in all of his forgiving grace, if you think you best find God for you on the heights of glory, beware. For if you climb that mountain... In search of him up there, you just might find, indeed you will find, that he's not up there. He's down here. 
He's down here with us. He's down here breaking His forgiving light into every dark plain and valley of life. One day we'll be there. We'll dwell with Moses and Elijah and on the heights of His unveiled glory. You could even say that today is our Mount Nebo because we get a, a glimpse viewing the transfiguration. We get a glimpse of, of what's been promised to us. But for now, He joins us here on the plain. Take it from Peter, who having seen such glory would travel down that mount and into some of the darkest and most regret-filled valleys that he'd ever known. But who, because Jesus was down there for him, would later in life be enabled to say this, We were eyewitnesses of His majesty, For he received honor and glory when such a voice came to him and we heard his voice and and we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word, the the word of Moses, the word of of Elijah. We have that word confirmed. That's to say that he, he was who the prophets foretold he was going to be and he did what they hoped in. What they said he was going to do, Peter says, which you do well to heed which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place, in your darkest place. On today's Transfiguration Mount, we can't remain. Already Wednesday, we find ourselves on the plain of repentance in the Valley of the Ashes, Ash Wednesday. But know this, the same God veiled though he may be will be right there for us too a blessed epiphany to you all in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen